the majority of people have some online aspects and some offline aspects in their radicalization to greater or lesser extents, depending, you know, on a whole host of individual uh, factors. Hi, I'm Anna Krana. I'm a senior research analyst at Tech Against Terrorism, an organization that supports the global tech sector tackle terrorist and violent extremist use of the internet whilst respecting human rights. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. This week, we'll be discussing the role of the internet in the radicalization of terrorists and violent extremists. We'll be learning what radicalization is, debunking some of the myths surrounding it, and discussing how the online and offline worlds interact. We'll also consider what tech companies and governments can do to reduce the chances of someone becoming radicalized online. I'm joined for this episode by two of the leading academic researchers in this field. Maura Conway is Professor of International Security in the School of Law and Government at Dublin City University. And Ryan Scrivens is an Assistant Professor in the School of Criminal Justice at Michigan State University. Let's start by considering what is radicalization? According to the Oxford English Dictionary, it's the action or process of causing someone to adopt radical positions on political or social issues. Mora says that's not a bad definition, but the term radicalization is one which is constantly evolving and there isn't necessarily a consensus about what it means. It's interesting because if you look at, for example, the Oxford English Dictionary definition, when you look at the array of examples underneath to illustrate the word, they're really all about societal groups like students, for example, or political parties or this kind of thing. A lot of them are, in fact, um, historical, but none of them are really about individuals. And I think one of the things that characterizes our conception of radicalization within extremism and terrorism studies is that it's precisely about individual radicalization. In extremism and terrorism studies, I think we default to one of two things in that respect. Either we think about violent radicalization, even if we're not always saying that, oftentimes we're kind of implicitly thinking violent radicalization. In other words, that it's precisely this idea that you can resolve social and political issues or conflicts via resort to violence that is at the core of this. Or we'll um, default to ideas about extremism. So it's about extremist positions. So my interest is in online radicalization, or oftentimes we say violent online radicalization. Obviously, then what we're doing is we're we're looking at the internet as being something that's core to contemporary radicalization processes. So uh, I think it was probably in 2008, 2009, I wrote a paper with colleagues in which we included a conceptualization of online radicalization, where we described it as a process whereby individuals, through their online interactions, A, and their exposure to various types of internet content, B, come to view violence as a legitimate method of solving social and political issues or conflicts. So as we heard from Maura, radicalization tends to come under one of two umbrellas. The first is when a person starts to believe or support extreme views. And the second is when a person thinks social and political issues can be resolved by violence. But how does a person actually become radicalized? 
Brian Scriven studies violent far-right extremism with a focus on how far-right extremists use the internet. He's conducted in-depth interviews with current and former violent extremists and says his research seems to suggest that there are a number of push-and-pull factors that predispose people to extremist ideas. And this can sometimes result in a person becoming radicalized to violent extremism. Radicalization to violence, for example, really depends on a lot of different things. Uh, ideology, even within the extreme right, for example, uh, different spectrums within the extreme or far right, time, place, space. But nonetheless, the emerging empirical research, even though it's, uh, it's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done predominantly around collecting primary data, such as uh, interviewing current and former extremists, their family members, friends, so on and so forth. What is generally suggesting is uh, for push factors, a key component has to do with people at a young age who become susceptible to violent right-wing extremism, for example, have a lack of emotional support at a young age. This can come in a lot of different forms. It's not just at the home, for example. It could be at their schools. Uh, it could be amongst their peers or not have peers. And some work around push factors, though in its infancy, um, and though it's highly contested, is around this idea that there's a mental health concern for those becoming susceptible to violent right-wing extremism, oftentimes depression. We know a little bit more around the pull factors associated with people who become uh, interested and then join violent right-wing extremist groups. Some have similar ideological alignments with uh, others in, in violent right-wing extremist movements. Some are looking for protection. Uh, maybe they're being bullied in the schoolyard. Some are seeking thrill-seeking behaviors. Some people are looking to not only find a sense of belonging, but find that something to fill a gap in their lives, uh, a substitute perhaps for their family or identity or friends. Something that's consistently come up in the empirical literature, whether it's the extreme right or violent Islamists in general, um, is this idea that it's violent radicalization, people showing interest in becoming involved, oftentimes is linked to who they know, who they're connected with. That's an important role. Uh, the current literature suggests that the strength and number of networks can play an important role in whether people will decide to not only adhere to the ideologies, but join a violent extremist group, for example. The work that I've done, so I've, I've conducted interviews with former right-wing extremists um, from Canada, asking them a series of different questions from pathways in and out to the role of the internet in facilitating violent extremism. Generally, what they've said is they've come from a, a blend of broken and quote-unquote normal family upbringings, but what was important to the, or what was a key component in them becoming interested in the extremist ideologies or the extremist groups was searching for a sense of belonging and a purpose. And they were oftentimes recruited into these violent extremist groups, mostly violent racist skinhead groups. It's important to note that through people who they knew, trusted and looked up to. So importantly here, it's a challenge to unpick the influence, whether it's push or pull factors around what draws people into extremist ideologies, groups, movements, so on and so forth without us really understanding the what, when, how, why. In other words, it's a challenge to isolate how these interactions develop and take shape, especially over time. It's also a challenge to collect primary data or gather data in general in a capacity that we can then start to kind of suss out these different interactions. Let's turn now to the role of the internet in radicalization. Mora says most terrorism and extremism researchers believe the internet has come to play a greater role in radicalization over time. But that doesn't come as a huge surprise. That's not exactly earth-shattering, though it, it bears saying, because the internet has come to have a greater role in buying books. The internet has come to have a greater role in booking flights. 
So the internet has come to have a greater role in all aspects um, of people's lives or in many aspects of people's lives. And so the internet has come to have a greater role in radicalization or if you want to sort of think of it more broadly in extremism and terrorism. That's one thing. The second thing is that I think most of us, certainly I think about it as a spectrum. There are still some people who prefer for uh, reasons um, of principle and ideology and the fact that they live next door to a bookstore, um, you know, choose to still buy all of their books in a bricks and mortar uh, bookshop. But they also buy books online. And then there are some people who only buy books on the Internet. And I guess I would say that the, the role of the uh, Internet in contemporary extremism and terrorism is something similar. There are those people, a very small uh, number, I guess I would say, who probably have no online interactions whatsoever. On the other end of the scale are those people, again, probably a very small number of people who have no offline uh, interactions whatsoever. But the majority of people have some online aspects and some offline aspects in their radicalization to greater or lesser extents, depending, you know, on a whole host of individual uh, factors. For me, the fact that there are groups of people who are located um, in some specific place, like, for example, Portsmouth in the UK or a variety um, of other places in France, elsewhere in the UK and what have you, that's not particularly uh, surprising. I guess what we would um, hypothesize is that they were people, many of them who knew each other in real world uh, settings. And so the real world connections uh, had a considerable role for them. That does not mean that the internet didn't also play a considerable role, whether indeed, again, uh, number one, in terms of these people from these various uh, locations being exposed to these ideas via the internet, then drawing in their friends and oftentimes relatives uh, and what have you, or indeed going the other direction. So they first learn about these ideas and whatnot from their friends and relatives in offline settings and then learn further. Uh, online. Uh, and then I think there's a third aspect to this, which is very difficult to research. Uh, so there's not a whole lot out there about it. But I would certainly hypothesize that it's quite important, uh, which is to say, there are numerous instances where one or a small number of people left some town or city or what have you. And then at a later date, people who were known to them offline, again, their friends and relatives and whatnot, went and joined them, as it were. And the likelihood is that the person who first traveled, if we're talking about so-called Islamic State, for example, reached out online once they had reached Islamic State territory and encouraged their brothers and their cousins and their friends, or indeed their sisters and their girlfriends to come uh, and join them. And, you know, I think that's, if you think about it, something very compelling in and of itself. Because what we know from marketing uh, and other areas is that when somebody you know and trust 
tells you that something is a good product, if you like, then you're much more likely to believe that and to act on that than if it's uh, some much more generalized marketing or advertising. And I would certainly hypothesize that that's what happened in a great many instances. But like I said, it's not something that's been widely researched because it's quite, quite difficult to, to research it. Ryan agrees that online spaces are certainly a facilitator of radicalization, but he argues there are other factors that should also be considered. It affords greater opportunities for people to become interested in, in the extremist views and in some cases become violent extremists. The internet obviously has made it easier, for example, to connect and communicate with the like-minded from all around the globe or immerse themselves, for example, in networks of quote-unquote support that they otherwise may not have thought they had in their local communities. However, and we're going to discuss this later, I'm sure, is that to this date, there's little evidence to suggest that the internet is the sole explanation prompting individuals to decide to engage in violent extremism. Motivation, intent, capacity, time, space must also be accounted for. Now, it's highly likely that most of us use the internet every single day. It's fundamentally changed how we interact with people and the world around us. However, it also allows people to connect with virtual communities of people with similar and sometimes extreme views in a way that was impossible 30 years ago. When it comes to extremism and terrorism, the fact that you can very easily reach out to other like-minded people is really really a game changer because if you were a young person in I'm from a little village in Ireland if you were a young person in a little village in Ireland in the 1980s let's say and you somehow I'm not sure how became interested in in neo-nazism you would have some really significant difficulty in actually pursuing that And you would almost immediately, I would have said, come up against barriers that were insurmountable and probably just moved on to some other interest, uh, hopefully benign. However, in the contemporary uh, setting, just like you can find other people who are into knitting, you can also find other people who are into neo-Nazism or violent jihadism or incel dome. And you can spend... 12, 14 hours a day, every day, if you wish, interacting uh, with these people. For some small numbers of people, this is in fact what happens, and they do become radicalized, some of them largely through online means, and an even smaller number of people, it has to be said, so we're reducing in numbers all the time, then decide to carry out, you know, some type of an attack on those they perceive uh, as their uh, enemies. So I would say that for me, this is a really core aspect of online and and what it does, which is to draw people together who are, in fact, very, very widely dispersed and allow them to spend all day, every day, if they wish, communicating about some extremist ideology and, and then some small number of people individually or collectively taking a decision to engage in in some act um, of violence or terrorism. There are now a number of ways in which online spaces are used by terrorists and violent extremists to radicalize others. One of the most obvious examples is from 2014, when Islamic State persuaded tens of thousands of foreign nationals, and often their families, to travel to Syria and Iraq to fight for IS. I'm going to let Maura explain how that campaign played out. 
obviously when you have a group like Islamic State, uh, for example, I mean, they put um, massive amounts of uh, people and money and other resources, including time and technology uh, and what have you, into the development and then the circulation um, of their online content. They didn't continue to do that um, over a number of years without feeling like they were getting something out of that. So in other words, that all these this resourcing was worthwhile and that they were getting payback. They were a group that had people and money and what have you, and they felt that that was an important and worthwhile uh, activity. And one assumes it's precisely because, um, you know, they put the word out, they painted a picture of their caliphate, they invited people uh, to come and join them in the caliphate. They said, if you can't come and join us, carry out attacks in, in your home country or in other jurisdictions. They realized at various points in time that they needed different types of people. So they start out and they're putting out this invitation to to young men, so-called foreign fighters who came to join them. But but then they had the realization that you can't birth the state, you know, um, without literally birthing a state. So you need uh, young women to do that. That's also takes uh, quite a lot of time. So then you put out a call for families to come to so-called Islamic State uh, and what have you. So all of this, I think, uh, was done. You know, you, you put out these invitations, these these narratives, if you like. And then what you're hoping for is that you will get people in this case to, to travel um, to the caliphate. And indeed, that that's more or less what occurred. You know, there's other types of activity, obviously, that's not as um, sustained, that's not as well resourced, and that's not so top down um, as the original Islamic State online media strategy and content production and circulation strategy was. So there are much more sort of grassroots um, movements that we can see online uh, at the present time you know, where it's much more about um, user-generated content. It's about, you know, pooling different types of content, different kinds of ideas, actually, uh, oftentimes, too. People sort of gathering online in looser structurings, if you like. You might not know this, but in the UK, if you view a piece of terrorist material online, even once, you could be prosecuted for terrorism offences. Previously, a person couldn't be charged with terrorism offences unless they had downloaded or saved the content. So how easy is it for a person to become radicalised simply from viewing terrorist content online? Let's hear from Ryan. I think there's two parts to this question. The first is around this idea of after terrorist attacks, uh, extremist content is circulating. And I mean, empirical research is showing that time and time and time again, whether it's extremist content on mainstream social media platforms, all the way to encrypted channels. It's quite clear that what we're called, we call trigger events, whether it's presidential elections, rallies, uh, riots, so on and so forth, we are seeing an influx of chatter, uh, sometimes leading up and oftentimes following these events, that the idea then would be that because more of this information is in potentially in the faces of young folks, for example, that they are likely to perhaps show interest in the materials and in some cases become radicalized to violent extremism. But as Mora has aptly noted, the mere viewing of extremist content, violent extremist content, terrorist content, content and becoming radicalized doesn't really add up. There's very limited research to suggest that the internet is a sole, is a sole explanation of 
violent extremism. I recently conducted a, a study with uh, Tiana Cadet, who's a PhD student in the School of Criminal Justice at Michigan State University, where we conducted interviews with former right-wing extremists in Canada, asking them to kind of explain to us or suss out these interactions between their on and offline worlds during their early involvement in violent extremism before that and after. And three things kind of came out of that. I mean, it's it's like every other study. It's It's very difficult to try to unpack these complexities. But what became clear around exposure to extremist content during even before they got interested or became involved in violent right-wing extremism was that one, exposure to extremist content online does play a critical role in sparking people's interest in violent extremist ideologies. Two, there's a big but here, is that those susceptible to being recruited into violent extremist groups or movements, uh, the right-wing extremist movement in particular in our case, tend to have a desire to belong to something bigger than themselves or to be part of a collective, whatever that is, um, which is a key factor in sparking their initial interest in violent extremist ideologies and then perhaps the groups or the other way around. And then three, but regardless of how someone is first exposed to violent extremist ideologies, groups, movements, so on and so forth, is the internet that eventually facilitates processes of violent radicalization by enabling people to immerse themselves in extremist content and networks. I guess I'll make a little plug for a recent uh, piece that uh, just came out in New Media and Society by uh, uh, Braddock and colleagues. Um, they found something really interesting, uh, which I guess to me is no surprise, and I, I would assume for more it's no surprise as well. They found that engagement in subversive online activity, so risky behavior online, predicts susceptibility to being persuaded by far-right extremist propaganda. So the short of it, I guess, is that people who are already kind of dabbling or interested or, or doing activities online that are questionable in some circles are more susceptible to buying into or showing interest in extremist ideologies. Now, the question to me becomes always is, when do they start becoming engaged in the violent ideologies? And when are they willing to engage in violence for that cause? And I think that's something we just are not even close to looking at right now. Doing this type of research, uh, good luck trying to publish this stuff in a peer-reviewed journal unless you have the data to support it. Um, it is very difficult to, uh, for example, conduct in-depth interviews with people uh, who are currently or formally involved in violent extremist movements. I think that's going to be a key next step. Um, as a recent report brought out by, uh, by folks at Crest, that there's just not enough primary data around questions of violent radicalization, de-radicalization, the role of the internet, and so on and so forth. But I think that's going to be the next uh, a key step. But it's, it's, it's definitely a challenge to get people uh, to talk to you. Another function the internet plays is to allow someone to take on a different persona and to escape offline societal boundaries. Mora explains how this is factored into terrorist recruitment online. One of the affordances, if you like, of the internet is to be able to, if you wish, represent yourself as somebody absolutely different from who you actually are, if you like, in real world uh, settings. And indeed, we do have multiple instances of people active in extremism and terrorism circles, you know, doing precisely that. So, for example, you know, in a, in a really quite general way, um, you have quite a lot of users in jihadi online spaces representing themselves as males 
when they're actually females, for example, because there are many more male spaces uh, in, in the jihadi online worlds than there are female spaces. And so one of the things we know is that when female researchers are researching online in jihadi spaces, they almost, to a woman as it were, represent themselves as male. And this is perfectly possible to do on the internet. So gender switching is absolutely commonplace and very easy online. But then there are others who actually, you know, have gone quite far down some of these uh, roads. For example, Shami Witness, for example, who was a core node in online Islamic State uh, circles in, what, 2015, 2016, probably. And many people thought that he was actually on the ground, potentially, in Iraq or Syria, uh, when, in fact, he had never set foot in Iraq or Syria. He was an IT guy in India. But that didn't stop him, you know, being this core node in jihadi circles and sort of through his anonymity and and through his screen name uh, and whatnot, allowing people to believe that he was sort of somebody else doing something else. The absolute clearest case of this is a guy in the United States. He, He was in Florida, Joshua Goldberg. He was actually was online acting some of the time as if he were a neo-Nazi, some of the time representing himself as a liberal feminist, and some of the time representing himself as a supporter of Islamic State. The FBI came knocking on his door precisely because of him representing himself um, as being an Islamic State supporter. But this one always, for me, has raised really interesting questions because many times you see him being described as a troll, for example. So in other words, the implication is that he wasn't really, in inverted commas, an Islamic State supporter because you couldn't really be an Islamic State supporter and a liberal feminist and a neo-Nazi at the same time. The thing about it is this is the internet. And so I think a crucial sort of question is, yeah, but does it matter whether you were really an Islamic State supporter or not? Because in his case, he's uh, actually was jailed probably in about 2018 for 10 years, precisely because he was implicated in various terrorist uh, attacks and in influencing other people to carry out those attacks and and related kind of activity. Whereas I think the possibility of somebody undertaking that kind of really different ideological activity in a real world setting, it's not impossible, but I think it's much, much less uh, likely. So again, the internet facilitates this type of activity to a much, much greater extent. One notable aspect we've got to consider when we talk about online radicalization is the role of terrorist manifestos and live streaming of attacks in violent radicalization. Terrorist manifestos are published documents which outline ideology, motivations, and tactical choices behind an attack. There have been a number of high-profile attacks in recent years which were live-streamed, including when a gunman opened fire at two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand in 2019. He filmed the attack while simultaneously posting it on Facebook. Copies of the video were then re-shared across many platforms as social media companies attempted to remove the footage. 
As we discussed in Series 1, Episode 5 of the podcast, the sharing of the video by some mainstream news outlets undermined efforts to remove it online and contributed to it going viral. This event really exposed the challenges tech platforms face in effectively tackling unfolding terrorist attacks which exploit online features such as live streams. And it also begs the question, how much of an impact do terrorist manifestos and live streams have when it comes to radicalizing others? Here's Ryan again. When people who are who adhere to extreme right-wing views, for example, see that somebody actually did something, the most violent side, really, um, live streaming an attack uh, of violence, it, it, it shows them that what they're doing online, for example, isn't just all chatter. You know, there's going to be some actions as a result of this. And what they see as well is that people are willing to engage in violence or action for the cause. So I think not only does that generate buzz amongst other like-minded folks in online communities, for example, but what they also see, like, like we know about terrorism, it's a theater of terrorism where people on the streets, for example, are now concerned that they could be the next target of a terrorist attack because they're not white, for example. So I think it, it works on a number of different uh, levels. The reality is, I mean, what we know generally about um, the impact of live streaming terrorist attacks, for example, or manifestos is, is it's quite anecdotal. We just we don't have the data to really dig in deep and to say X is in part the result of, of, of Y. But I think it, it, it doesn't take you much to look online to see droves and droves of, of misinformation and disinformation around terror attacks, people idolizing what they perceive as martyrs. Um, that's another key point there. But I think the reality is, is it shows that there are people uh, willing to take up arms and engage in violence in the name of that cause. So I think it, it definitely has the potential to mobilize others. I mean, we've seen days after various at- attacks. I don't want to name his name, uh, the New Zealand attacker. Uh, there were a series of copycat call-ins, if you will, of people calling different mosques in different parts of the world saying, we are going to come and we are going to shoot you. That obviously has an impact on people who don't share uh, beliefs that, that others do. Regarding countering material that may feed into someone's radicalization process, such as manifestos, at Tech Against Terrorism, we've developed a crisis protocol which allows us to respond to unfolding incidents like attacker live streams by promptly flagging the content to a wide range of platforms to combat its rapid spread across the internet. What about the role of online harm such as conspiracy theories? Ryan believes misinformation and disinformation have made extremism more mainstream. These types of discussions around misinformation and disinformation have facilitated, even encouraged in many respects, extremist views. And then people who are becoming more immersed in extremist or uh, disinformation and misinformation could start thinking, okay, this stuff is normal, but then they want a little bit more and a little bit more and then could become more violent or, or not. But I guess... The, the short of it is, is it's increasingly difficult as a researcher uh, and something that uh, Moore and I have discussed uh, in, in one of our, our, our recent publications is to try to kind of make sense and wrap our head around uh, what is the extreme right, for example? How do they use the internet? Because we are seeing this shift in, in our way of, of what is considered the norm or what is considered the mainstream and misinformation and dif- disinformation has played a key role in uh, confusing us as, as researchers and, and obviously as people. And as Mora says, online echo chambers and recommendation algorithms do play a big role in the spreading of mis- and disinformation. She believes it's an area terrorism researchers need to focus on more. So I guess what I may be calling for here is 
more extremism and terrorism researchers coming to misinfo, disinfo, conspiracies, etc., from an extremism and terrorism and perspective and see where that uh, gets us. In terms of algorithmic amplification, this is certainly something that's getting um, a lot more attention at the present time. As I understand it, it's probably because this is something that policymakers have a much greater awareness of today than they did when the original work was done in this area. So actually, colleagues, computer science colleagues and I from uh, University College Dublin did work on recommender systems almost a decade ago now. And it was actually precisely about the far right and the way in which um, YouTube, if you clicked on, on some video, YouTube would recommend you more videos like that. Completely unsurprisingly, that's the whole purpose of the recommend uh, bar or what have you uh, on YouTube and a variety um, of, of other platforms. But even back then, uh, it, it was obvious uh, that if what's going to happen is you click on one extreme right video and then you get more and more of those. And follow up research has shown that not only do you get more and more of the videos, they get more extreme. It's like, OK, thank you, Internet companies for, you know, having good recommender systems um, in, in some respect. Um, but again, we're, we're, we're at this issue whereby the companies need to take into account that very well working, very well refined recommender systems or, if you wish, algorithms, right, will throw up these kinds of issues and that they need to be prepared to think through some of the, the negative outcomes of, of a, a really refined uh, recommender, for example. For me, um, one of the things that I wrote in, in that paper of ours is called Down the White Rabbit Hole, is that, again, it, it's not just about users, but processes of radicalization, online radicalization, are very often about the interaction between users and platforms to a greater, again, or lesser extent. But, but once you have a recommender system or other kinds of algorithmic processes playing a part, well, these can become very entwined in radicalization processes. So I've already mentioned YouTube. Twitter, for example, and Facebook at various points in time recommended Twitter in particular. If you followed one Islamic State account in 2014, they would re recommend you a bunch more Islamic State accounts. Uh, just follow them and you get recommended more. Again, this was just their recommender system operating in the way which it was supposed to operate. The problem is when it's not recommending you knitting groups, it's recommending you terrorist organizations. Now, I understand that there is oftentimes difficulty in categorizing some of these uh, movements uh, uh, and groups uh, and what have you. So it's not cut and dried. But again, nevertheless, this, this is something that, you know, warrants considerable uh, attention, not just from researchers, but from the companies that are developing the algorithms and the companies that are, you know, uh, making the recommendations. So this question of algorithmic amplification is a live one again. It hasn't gone away. There are a variety of new and different platforms uh, on which it is playing out. Uh, and so it definitely warrants our attention as researchers going forward. 
Mora highlights a salient concern among online counterterrorism practitioners and tech companies, with debates around the radicalizing impact of these recommendation algorithms. This is a topic we will address in more detail in a dedicated episode later in the series. So what else can tech companies and governments do to mitigate the risk of online radicalization? Let's get some final thoughts from both Ryan and Mora. In, in a perfect world, I like to promote a multi-sectoral or a multidisciplinary approach where key stakeholders from various sectors, including uh, academics, uh, educators, uh, law enforcement in some cases, some activists in some cases, um, so on and so forth, can come together with various pieces of the puzzle, because one might have one, one might have another. Keep in mind that this puzzle is oftentimes very complex, but if you put these pieces together, you can get a more in-depth nuance as well as a broader understanding of complex issues around the role of the internet in facilitating violent extremism, for example, whether it's from the extreme right or uh, violent Islamists, for example. If I were to make one suggestion, that would probably be, and I, and I, and I do believe that um, tech companies and governments are doing this to some extent. I don't know the extent, obviously, but what I have heard in the U.S. and in Canada is that uh, tech and government have been increasingly been working with uh, teachers and educators on the ground. Um, I think that's going to be a key key step as we move ahead. From the research that I've done, it was quite clear that people that uh, immersed themselves and got involved in violent uh, racist skinheads, for example, um, back in the early 2000 to 2010, 12. Diversity wasn't much of a discussion. This is, and this is even in Canada, for example. Um, it was this idea of what I'll call diversity in a day. Once a year, you have uh, training in school about how people are different. And that's great. But I think we need to have consistent discussions about difference and about diversity issues and about extreme views. Because I, I'm strongly of the view, if we pretend like this stuff doesn't exist, if, if people don't have extreme views that could lead to violent extremism, that's when I think violent extremism will flourish. But on the flip side as well, um, if we over-glorify violent extremists, I think that that uh, further normalizes uh, what appears to be normalizing um, extremist views. So I I do think that we need to be on the ground um, with teachers and educators, educating our children and our children's children about some of the issues that we ourselves are grappling with now, uh, in our case, talking about violent online political extremism. Yeah, so I agree with what Ryan has just said in this respect, and I guess I would add a bit more. I feel like we also need to educate children and youth about the workings of the internet. I don't mean about necessarily extremism and terrorism online, um, though I think you could eventually um, get to that. Um, but actually, I- I'm not sure um, that that's, that's certainly not necessary at the outset. Um, What I think is mistaken is to believe that this idea that um, children and young people are digital natives and therefore they just know how to work the internet and the rest of us are just catching up or what have you. This is always seems to me like saying something like we're not going to bother saying an English speaking country teaching English because kids already speak English. (laughs) But this doesn't make any sense. This is not sensible, right? Because what you want to say is, well, we're going to introduce you to English grammar. Um, You know, you need to know how to read English. You need to know how to do English spelling. If you think about it, from day one in infant school, in, in kindergarten, as it were, there are uh, English lessons and these go these go right up to your, your last day in secondary school or, or high school. And then you can go and take a university degree. 
right now you can actually take a university degree in in online right undergraduate degrees ma degrees but what's missing i think in an awful lot of jurisdictions is a really well thought out consistent curriculum that's been developed about online that is you know age appropriate so starts with information for very young children and then obviously uh, increases its in its complexity uh, and whatnot when you get into secondary school or or high school and what have you. And it's just not appropriate to leave the workings of the internet to to young kids and say, you know, oh, they have it worked out uh, and what have you. Because I think that at this stage, that's pretty irresponsible, to be honest with you. I guess the other thing I would say is that um, I am somebody who favors regulation. That's the job of governments. Uh, the job of governments is to develop uh, uh, laws and legislation and for those then to be able to be challenged in the courts if that's what's necessary. And that is appropriate in every domain. And the Internet is not and should not be different uh, in that respect. I don't find arguments that the internet is so different and so complex that it can't be regulated for. There are many, many other things that are very difficult uh, and complex that have indeed been regulated uh, for. Mistakes will definitely be made. Um, You know, these regulations will have to be, you know, sort of promulgated and then and then changed and tweaked and whatnot uh, over time. But, you know, this is what happened in a whole bunch of other realms uh, also. So for me, uh, ultimately, the route that we need to go down is a regulatory uh, route. And so for me, that's that's one of the most important aspects here. Of course, not leaving out um, all the other aspects that were pointed to uh, by Ryan in his comments. As Maura touched on, online regulation is an important tool for keeping the internet safe. Here at Tech Against Terrorism, we work with governments to ensure online regulation effectively tackles terrorist and violent extremist content while upholding human rights. And in a future episode, we will dive further into this. A huge thank you to our guests, Maura Conway and Ryan Scrivens for their input in today's episode. To find out more about Tech Against Terrorism and our work, visit techagainstterrorism.org or follow us on Twitter at Tech Terrorism, where you can find resources on today's topic. I'm Anna Krane. This is the Tech Against Terrorism podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week for another episode. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.